0: Danish philosopher and theologian Soren Kierkegaard once warned that the day when Christianity and the world become friends, that's the day when Christianity is done away with. Uh, but that was not original with him. Actually, that uh, in fact, Jesus gave that subject primary attention in one of the most comprehensive prayers recorded for us in the Gospels, in John chapter 17, and verse beginning in verse 14. Um, Listen to these words of Jesus. John 17, verse 14 and following. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. So I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Great passage of Scripture. Great prayer of our Savior, James, Jesus' little brother, also addressed this very controversial point. Without the slightest bit of softness in his words, he denounces worldliness as spiritual adultery. In James chapter 4, if you remember in verse 4, James says, you adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Strong words. And as we've seen, there's no messing around with James. It's with all its enticements, though, how then can we keep from getting sucked into this seemingly irresistible and seductive draw of the world around us day in and day out? Last time I left you with the thought that the answer may revolve around the concept of where we have our focus and maintaining that focus. Focus is something that we have sacrificed on the idolatrous altar of efficiency and the world around us. We are a distracted people, distracted. It's the plan of the enemy to throw so many obstacles in the path of obedience to God that maintaining our focus becomes the most critical element of maintaining our spiritual equilibrium. It is essential in order to avoid becoming swallowed up and absorbed by the whirlpool of worldliness that we find ourselves dealing with on a daily basis. Something came across my desk once that really hit home, written in the spirit of C.S. Lewis, a C.S. Lewis novel. It is mere fantasy, and yet I wonder how accurately it really describes the spiritual battle being waged for our souls, I've altered it slightly to reflect our times, but I want to read you this thing called "The Devil's Convention." Satan called a worldwide convention in his opening address, keynote speech to his evil angels, this is what he said, quote, "We can't keep the Christians from going to church. We can't keep them from reading their Bibles and knowing the truth. We can't even keep them from forming an intimate, abiding relationship experience in Christ Christ." if they gain that connection with Jesus, our power over them is broken. So, let them go to their churches, let them have their conservative lifestyles, but steal their time. So they can't gain that relationship with Jesus Christ. This is what I want you to do, angels. Distract them from gaining hold of their Savior and maintaining that vital connection throughout their day. How shall we do this, they all shouted. Well, he said, keep them busy in the non-essentials of life and invent innumerable schemes to occupy their minds. Tempt them to spend, 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 and borrow, borrow, borrow. Persuade the wives to go to work for long hours and the husbands to work six to seven days a week, 10 to 12 hours a day, so they can afford their empty lifestyles. Keep them from spending time with their children. As their family fragments, soon their home will offer no escape from the pressures of work. Overstimulate their minds so that they cannot hear that still small voice. Entice them to play the radio or CD player whenever they drive to keep their TVs, tablets, and smartphones and their PCs going constantly in their homes. And see to it that every store and every restaurant in the world plays non-biblical music constantly and this is going to jam their minds and break that connection with Christ. Fill their coffee tables with magazines and newspapers. Pound their minds with the news 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Invade their driving moments with billboards. Flood their email and mailboxes with junk mail, mail order catalogs, sweepstakes, and every kind of newsletter and blog and promotional offering, free products, services, and false hopes you can possibly imagine. Keep skinny, beautiful, and buff models on the magazine covers so that the husbands and the wives will believe that external beauty is what's important and they'll become dissatisfied with their own spouses. That'll fragment their families very quickly. Even in their recreation, let them be excessive. Have them return from their recreation and their vacations exhausted, disquieted, and unprepared for the coming week. Don't let them go out in nature to reflect on God's wonders. Send them to amusement parks and sporting events and concerts and movies instead. Keep them busy, busy, busy. And when they meet for spiritual fellowship, involve them in gossip and small talk so that they leave with troubled consciences and unsettled emotions. Go ahead. Let them be involved in soul winning but crowd their lives with so many good causes that they have no time to seek power from Christ. Soon, they will be working in their own strength, sacrificing their health and family for the good of the cause. It will work, I tell you, it will work. It's quite a convention that day. And the evil angels went eagerly to their assignments, causing Christians everywhere to get busy doing the Lord's work. Supposedly. A well, busy, or as I have often referred to it as being under Satan's yoke, is nowhere for a child of God to be. And yet, when asked how things are going, what's the most common answer heard? I'm oh, busy. Christians and non-Christians alike. Jesuit theologian John Courtney Murray identified in Time Magazine that as the atheism of distraction people who are just too busy to worry about God at all that's the message of James chapter 4 verses 7 to 10 it speaks to the heart of every person caught on this treadmill of distraction and as I said last week it really cuts to the heart of our friendship with the world he calls it spiritual adultery not only does he cut to the heart but he also cuts to the chase Perfectly tailored to our 100 miles an hour pace of life, James wastes no breath. His sentences are quick, they're concise, convicting, and direct. In 10 short but urgent commands, he communicates one central truth, which I brought out last week, is that the remedy for our worldliness is the pursuit of godliness. So again, I've tried to summarize James's 10 imperatives into four brief statements identifying these basic elements. We looked at two of them last week. The first one was this. Submit and resist. That's the first reaction that we need to have, according to James in verse 7. Submit, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. James says, if you're going to maintain an effective Christianity that has influence in the world, but does not become part of its self-centered humanistic system, you know what you're going to need to do? You're going to need to subordinate your will to God's will and line up under him. Only then will you be able to stand up against the devil's schemes who seeks to deceive, distract, and devour you. That's the message, sweet and simple. As long as your will is submitted to God's will, you can resist him. And James says here, he will flee from you. Submit and resist. Secondly, James said, draw near and get clean. Verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. The closer we get to the world, the further we get from the Father. There's always an open invitation, though, to return. And not just an invitation, but a guaranteed result. Look at verse 8. Draw near to God and what will happen? God will draw near to you. Drawing near to God happens through the exercise of a few things, biblically speaking, we looked at last week. It'll be on the screen. I'm not going to go through them again. But it's not simply enough to draw near. In the process, James says, you got to get clean. Someone recently told the story of an aunt and uncle who had a missionary family visiting them. Some of you may have heard me say this before, but when the missionary children were called in for dinner, their mother said, Be sure to wash your hands. The little boy scowled at her request, and as he walked off to go wash under his breath, he's complaining. He's saying, germs in Jesus, germs in Jesus. He says, that's all I ever hear, and I've never seen either one of them. <laughs> now, we may not recognize the contamination that we carry with us, but God surely sees it, right? Yeah. The communion with God requires purity of heart, and only Christ can cleanse us but we must choose to come to him before he will actually do it and when we do the scripture says he is faithful first john chapter 1 verse 9 says that if we confess our sins he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to what cleanse us from all unrighteousness friends our hearts need purification constantly Why? Because it's so easy for our allegiance to be compromised by the drawing power of life in this world. Last week, I mentioned to you at the end of the service, at the end of the sermon, uh, an eye-opening newsletter written by Richard Foster that applies convincingly to our contemporary society, showing our divided affections and how easily we can get split, double-minded, as James says, And we catch ourselves pursuing the idols of this world while we simultaneously try to hold on to God. And they did that in the Old Testament, you know. The syncretistic religions and nations, this is what Israel did. In 2 Kings 17, we read these words. It says, They feared the Lord and served their own gods according to the custom of the nations from whom they had been carried away into exile. But not only that, while these nations feared the Lord, they also served their idols, their children likewise. And their grandchildren, as their fathers did, so they do to this day. That's a scary thought, isn't it? It gets passed down from generation to generation. Someone once said what one generation does in moderation, the next generation does to excess. And we're looking at it. In that article, Richard Foster identified three of the most pervasive idols of our present world which vie for our allegiance, and I told you they were personal autonomy, pleasure, and efficiency. Let me just unpack that just a little bit. The idol of personal autonomy. Now, for vast numbers today, he says the ultimate goal in this life is personal autonomy. In other words, the power to do my own thing, define my own future, and determine my own fate. And now you can even determine your own gender. The driving impulse of this unholy trinity of me, myself, and I is freedom without responsibility. It spreads throughout the land by means of numerous miniature self-idols that, all, that people carry with them every single day. Things like self-indulgence, self-promotion, self-will, self-sufficiency, self-preservation, self-gratification, self-service, self-aggrandizement, self-righteousness, and more. You see what the commonality in all of that is? Self. And the idolatry of personal autonomy pervades this culture that we live in from the new age mumbo jumbo that I am God to the self-help books that assure me that I can be and do anything and everything that I want. Just put your mind to it. Positive confession, you can do it. And we defeat, he says, the idol of personal autonomy by compassion and service. That's how you defeat the idol of personal autonomy. Compassion and service. Secondly, he brings out the idol of pleasure or entitlement. Pleasure becomes an idolatrous thing when it becomes an absolute right. Demanded at all times, under all circumstances. Our attachment to things fuels us in an endless appetite for more, more money, more power, more toys, more, more, more. We can never get enough, never. The lust for things has reached this level of psychosis in contemporary culture. It's psychotic because it has completely lost touch with reality, he says. We crave things we neither need nor enjoy. It's true, isn't it? He says, we buy things we do not want to impress people we do not like. (laughs) We're made to feel ashamed to wear clothes or drive cars until they're worn out. Our lust for affluence has convinced us that to be out of step with fashion is to be out of step with reality. He says, it is time we awaken to the fact that conformity to a sick society is to be sick. It's true. We defeat the idol of pleasure, he says, by sacrifice and simplicity. Sacrifice empowers us to surrender our rights for the greater good of the kingdom of God. Simplicity ushers us into a way of living that is free from the passion to always have to possess. Possess. Then, the idol of efficiency, technological efficiency. Now, if this one doesn't speak to all of us, I don't know what does. Excuse me. Of the three idols, he views efficiency as the most entrenched and pervasive of the modern era and the most destructive. The engine driving this particular idolatry is modern technology. And the technological advances of recent years are very impressive, wouldn't you say? I mean, really, smartphones, laptops, the World Wide Web, all of that stuff, we can't get away from it. It is constantly with us. All of these technological advances are aimed at our hankering after more efficiency. Please don't misunderstand Advances in technology have been extremely helpful in accomplishing many tasks, but we have created a technological society at an enormous human cost. By its very nature, it dehumanizes people, turning them into objects to be managed and controlled. How many of you now are getting solicitations on your cell phones? It's not just telemarketers on your home phones, but on your cell phones. And they don't even sound like machines anymore. They make them sound like human beings that actually drop the phone. Oops, sorry, are you still there? And it's a recording. It dehumanizes people. Also, dangerous are the excessive godlike claims made for technology. We're told that given time, technology will surely solve every problem, deliver every good. But this information superhighway does give us a lot of information by the ton, but that does not particularly translate into insight, discernment, or heavenly wisdom. What we need is a day of quiet reflection or two, or three. That's often far more productive than a constant bombardment of online services, emails, and faxes. If we want to genuinely be helpful to people, we need the perspective that can only come from solitude and silence in spending time with Jesus. For I am nothing without him. We defeat the idol of efficiency by holy leisure in spiritual community, spiritual friendship. Holy leisure tempers our everlasting itch to get ahead of everybody else. Spiritual friendship helps us to value people for who they are and not necessarily for what they can accomplish for us. Together, they dethrone efficiency and free us from this intolerable scramble of panting feverishness to get the job done. See, you cannot serve two masters. It's impossible. God wants our devotion. How much? Total. He doesn't want a mere percentage, no matter how large we think we're giving him, He doesn't want a life that is weighted more toward him than toward the world. He wants a devotion that says when push comes to shove, our loyalties to the world system are as good as dead because as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Listen to some soul-piercing words from a book entitled The Pursuit of God. It is said that A.W. Tozer literally wrote this book on his knees, and having read this book numerous times, I'm convinced that that is absolutely true. He says, our break with the world will be the direct outcome of our changed relation to God. For the world of fallen men does not honor God. Millions call themselves by his name, it is true, and pay some token respect to him, but a simple test will show how little he is really honored among them. Let the average man be put to the proof on the question of who is above, and his true position will be exposed. Let him be forced into making a choice between God and money, between God and men, between God and personal ambition, between God and self, between God and human love. And God will take second place every time. Those other things will be exalted above. However, the man may protest. The proof is in the choices that he makes day to day throughout his life. Be thou exalted, he says, is the language of victorious spiritual experience. It's the little key to unlock the door to great treasures of grace. It is central in the life of God in the soul. Let the seeking man reach a place where life and lips join to say continually, Be thou exalted, and a thousand minor problems will be solved all at once. His Christian life ceases to be the complicated thing it had been before and becomes the very essence of simplicity. Be thou exalted. You see, the remedy for worldliness is the pursuit of godliness. Submit and resist, draw near and get clean, and then James says, get serious and repent. Verse 9, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, the first step towards God and the only one that will bring him near to us is, somebody tell me, Repentance. It's repentance. That's how you draw near to God. And then he draws near to us. The emotional reversals and verbal contrasts here in this verse are striking and abrupt, aren't they? Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. He says, forget the frivolous laughter. When James says be miserable, he's not really just advocating some lifestyle of hang your head and drown yourself in your sorrows every day. He's literally referring to the feeling of wretchedness, however, and shame that we ought to experience over our sin. You see, what do we experience shame over these days? You hear all this talk about body shaming and all of that kind of stuff, and people feel so much shame over that stuff. It's not what James is talking about. But how often do we feel shame over our sin? We ought to experience wretchedness and shame over our sin until Jesus Christ's grace comes in and causes us to remember that that's all forgiven. And we're not ashamed anymore in Christ Jesus. But James says it literally means to undergo hardship, to suffer affliction and grief. That's what it means by being miserable. You know what the term is, an English term that that really kind of parallels this? Not one that's very, used very much these days. It's an old school term. Compunction. Ever heard that term? So it's kind of a neat word. It's got force, doesn't it? Compunction. It's from a Latin word which means to prick hard or to sting. It refers to anxiety arising from an awareness of guilt, a distress of mind over an anticipated action or results. Listen to the words that David wrote, which describe exactly what James is referring to. This and others are part, by the way, of a group of Psalms known as the penitential Psalms. In Psalm 38, David writes, My wounds fester and are loathsome because of my sinful folly. I am bowed down and brought very low. All day long, I go about mourning. My back is filled with searing pain and there is no health in my body. I am feeble and utterly crushed. I groan in agony of heart. These are David's words. See, David was penitent over his sin. His heart was filled with compunction. And the question that we have to ask ourselves in light of what James is bringing to the table here is how often are our hearts like that? Because this is what it means to be a man after God's own heart. It's part of what it means. Romans chapter seven, we read these words of Paul. What a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? John Newton had expressed it very accurately in the song Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I know people that refuse to sing that line in that song because they say, I'm not a wretch. I was never a wretch. Well... Okay, the apostle Paul was a wretch, and David, a man after God's own heart, was a wretch, and Jesus had to go to a cross because of our sin. I, that's pretty wretched to me. But our society it doesn't want to hear about the wretchedness of sin, and my friends, neither do people in the church. But according to author John Alexander, sin is the best news there is to a messed up society. Let me say that again. Sin is the best news there is to a messed up society. And you say, why is that? Because with sin, there's a way out. We have Jesus. You can't repent of confusion or psychological flaws inflicted by your parents, can you? You can't repent of that. You're stuck with those things. But you can repent of sin, can't you? Sin and repentance are the only grounds for hope and joy, he says. The grounds for reconciled, joyful relationships. This is the language of sincere, genuine repentance. Now, you've heard me quote the Puritan writer Thomas Watson who defined repentance as a vomiting of the soul. That's got to be the best definition that I've heard because it means lamenting and grieving so deeply over your sin that it cannot be hidden. It manifests itself in tears and trembling. It happens because you finally realize, and I finally realize, how much our sin pierces the heart of God. And you're so tired of hurting him that you weep. I've repeated the Catholic prayer on many occasions here that I learned growing up as a Roman Catholic called the act of contrition. One of the best prayers you can offer. In that prayer, it says that we detest, I detest all my sin. I detest it. Because of thy just punishment, but most of all, not just because of the punishment, not because I got caught, but most of all, because they offend thee, my God, who are all good and deserving of all my love. So I firmly resolve, with the help of thy grace, to sin no more and to avoid the near occasion of sin. It's a great prayer. It's the kind of prayer, the mourning over sin, that separates Christians from the rest of the world. Let me tell you, really, the UN doesn't confess sin. The Rotary Club, it doesn't confess sin when it prays before its meetings, I'm sure. Only the church confesses sins. A quote from a famous Dutchman, Puts it really well. He says, what distinguishes us, namely the people of God, what distinguishes us from the world is not that we are less wicked, but that by the grace of God, we have learned to see our wickedness for what it is and that we confess our sins. The church is not only, is is the only body on earth that confesses sin. Where the confession of sin dies out, the church is no longer the church. Those are pretty hefty words. They deserve our contemplation. Do we have that kind of strong feeling towards sin? I don't know if we do. I don't know if I do enough. You know what I think we do? I think we're managing our sin. We're managing our sin. We're laughing at our sin. We're ignoring our sin. We're blame shifting our sin. We're excusing our sin. We're doing everything in the world but repenting of our sin. Now, I'm talking generally. I know you've experienced repentance, and so have I. But on a general basis, where is the trend going? We've heard plenty on the idea that as Christians, we ought to be maintaining an attitude of joy. Joy, joy, joy. You hear a lot about joy, which is great. Psalm 126, verse two talks about that. But the laughter that James is talking about here is not the deep settled joy of the Lord that we need to maintain, that we have. No, he's talking about worldly mirth. He's talking about the frivolous laughter of a sick society that flippantly makes sport of sin. It's the response of a heart that ignores or even denies God, sin, life, death, holiness, and judgment. Friends, there is a time for laughter. No question about it. But there is also a time for weeping, Ecclesiastes says. Weeping over sin. We want to laugh now to escape that pain. But sometimes we ought to be weeping in humble repentance at the things that we sometimes laugh at. Jesus said, woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep, in Luke chapter 6, verse 25. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 7, he says, sorrow is better than laughter, for sadness has a refining influence on us. Isn't that interesting? A wise person thinks a lot about death, while a fool thinks only about having a good time. Does your heart ever become heavy over sin? Sorrowful to the point of repentance. James says, change your mind about what the world calls funny, laughable, and amusing. Because it's not. Only fools make sport of sin, says Proverbs 10.23. Worldliness is nothing to laugh at. We read it and weep here. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Because when it comes to weeding out the worldliness in your life, there is a clear and conscious remedy here. Submit and resist, draw near and get clean, get serious and repent. And finally, James says this, he says, get small and become great. Get small and become great. Verse 10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. After the death of Peanuts cartoonist Charles Schultz, many commented on his insight into the human soul. And he did have great insight into the human soul, didn't he? One such example is the image of two characters outside at night staring at the field of stars. Let's go inside and watch television, Charlie Brown says. I'm beginning to feel insignificant. We do feel small when we get a good glimpse of God, don't we? Augustine once wrote, if you ask me what is the first precept of the Christian religion, I will answer first, second, and third, humility. The way up is down. Matthew chapter 23, verse 12, Jesus said, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Peter caught that truth from Jesus in 1 Peter 5 and verse 6. He says, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. And Jesus, as we have repeatedly seen, is our ultimate model. Jesus, existing in the form of God, became a bondservant, made in the likeness of men, and appearing as a man, humbled himself How? Even to the point of death, as a bond servant, he humbled himself to the vilest form of death, crucifixion on a cross. It's the attitude, Paul says in Philippians 2, that we should be striving to have. Have this attitude in yourselves, the apostle Paul says, which was also in Christ Jesus. So humbling oneself in the sight of the Lord has a real spiritual effect on us. And it plays itself out, most often, invisible, practical, humbling of oneself in the sight of the world. When you humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, it is also seen by the world around you. One of the greatest illustrations of this is a true story that I read about. The author said, it was my wife, Gail, and I on an airplane, seated way in the back. And as the plane loaded up, a woman with two small kids came down the aisle to take the seat in front of us, and behind her was another woman. And the two women took the A and the C seats, and one of the children sat in the middle seat, and the second child was on the lap of one of the women. So I figured these two were mothers traveling together with their kids, and I hoped the kids wouldn't be too noisy. You all, anybody been on a flight with noisy kids right next to you? The flight started, my prayer wasn't answered, he says. The air was turbulent, the children cried a lot, their ears hurt, and it was a miserable flight. I watched as these two women kept trying to comfort these two kids. The woman at the window played with the child in the middle seat, trying to make her feel good and paying lots of attention to her. And I thought, boy, these women get a medal for what they're doing. But things went downhill from there. Toward the last part of the flight, the child in the middle seat got sick. Next thing I knew, she was losing everything from every part of her body. The diaper wasn't on tight and before long a stench began to rise through the cabin and it was unbearable. I could see over the top of the seat that stuff you don't want me to describe was all over everything. It was on this woman's clothes. It was all over her seat. It was on the floor. It was one of the most repugnant things I had seen in a long, long time. And the woman next to the window, patiently comforted the child and tried to best her best to clean up the mess and make something out of a bad situation. The plane finally landed, and when we pulled up to the gate, all of us were ready to exit that plane as fast as we possibly could. The flight attendant came up with paper towels, handed them to the woman in the window seat, and said, Here, ma'am, these are for your little girl. And the woman said, Oh, this isn't my little girl. Aren't you traveling together? No, I've never met this woman and these children before in my life. See, what you just heard is humility lived out. Now, a lot of us might have simply lost it in that situation, and there, people have, and they've caused problems on planes. But so much less than that, but this woman found the opportunity to show humility, to, to give mercy and to love and to serve that stranger to her, to live out Philippians chapter 2. And she became like Christ in a way. I don't know if she was a Christian or not, but she certainly exhibited the traits. God had put her in that seat next to that woman to serve. And you know what? She rose to the challenge. She got spit up on, crapped on, and had to put up with a lot of annoyed people all around her. But instead of complaining about it, you know what she did? She humbled herself and became what I would call great. So are you in a place in your spiritual life, am I for that matter, where we would react in the same way? You know, when I preach things like this, I I just feel like you're always going to be tested in this stuff. And I just pray that it's not on a flight to Scotland for 11 hours. But it could be. The remedy for worldliness is the pursuit of godliness. And the pursuit of godliness means that we must submit and resist, draw near and get clean, get serious and repent, get small and become great. Because it's when we become conscious of the one whose presence that we're really in, when we recognize that the life that we live and the things that we do and the words that we speak and the thoughts that we think all occur in the sight of an infinitely holy God, when we become small in our own eyes, no longer the center of the universe, it is then that we become humble. It is only then in dependence upon that God for our very breath, realizing that we are at the end of ourselves and we are in dire need of him that he promises to lift us up. Are you there? Let's pray. I'm gonna ask you to close your eyes and for our closing prayer, I am going to pray... A.W. Tozer's prayer from that book, The Pursuit of God. May it be yours as well. O God, be thou exalted over my possessions. Nothing of earth's treasures shall seem dear unto me if only thou art glorified in my life. Be thou exalted over my friendships. I am determined that thou shall be above all, though I must stand deserted and alone in the midst of the earth. Be thou exalted above my comforts and the carrying of heavy crosses. I shall keep my vow made this day before you. Be thou exalted over my reputation. Make me ambitious to please thee, even if as the result I must sink into obscurity and my name be forgotten as a dream. Rise, O Lord, into thy proper place of honor above my ambitions, above my likes and dislikes, above my family, my health, and even my life itself. Let me decrease that thou mayest increase. Let me sink that thou mayest rise above. Ride forth upon me as thou didst ride into Jerusalem, mounted upon that humble little beast, a colt, the foal of a donkey, and let me hear the children cry to thee, Hosanna in the highest.